2: W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Composer and guitarist Kaki King pushes the boundaries of her instrument. Rolling Stone described the musician as a genre unto herself. Kaki King performed her recent multimedia project, Data Not Found, at Georgia Tech last October. We'll hear about that foray into experimental theater and redefining her guitar as a device for storytelling later in the hour. Also, our series of local musicians in their own words. Speaking of music, today features Obie, the singer for the hardcore band Playtime. First, for decades, black protesters have chanted no justice, no peace in demonstrations against police brutality. This slogan is also the title of a new exhibition on view at Hammond's House Museum, No Justice, No Peace, Protest photography from 1967 through 2022. Among the featured artists is photographer Jim Alexander, who has been capturing the raw emotions of protesters since the 1960s. He joins me now via Zoom with film director and producer Adam Davis-McGee, whose virtual film series, In Protest, Grassroots Stories from the Front Lines, is showing concurrently at Hammond's house. Gentlemen, welcome to City Light.
0: Thank you, Lo. Thank you for having us.
2: Jim... I read that you first became interested in photography while you were in the Navy. How did that lead to a career in photography?
1: Well, through a circuitous route. (laughs) My first camera was a Brownie Hawkeye camera that I won on a $10 bet shooting dice in boot camp in the Navy in 1952. (laughs) The guy bet me $10, I couldn't make the 10. I said, all right, that's a bet. I didn't have $10, he didn't either. So when I made the 10, he said, just a minute, I'm going in the barracks. He went in the barracks, came back with this little yellow box. And he said, here, this camera, my mother made me bring it. You hold on to it till payday and I'll give you $10. Of course, payday, we got what was called a flying 10. We only got $10. So he said, Well, just just keep the camera. I'm not giving you my $10. Just keep the camera. I'm not going to take any pictures. My mother made me print this. So I started taking pictures of the guys on the base for 50 cents a piece. I did that for a while and then I started doing some other things and I heard from one of the the guys, uh, the older guys who, who were our trainers in boot camp, that Walter Winchell, I don't know if these younger people know who he is, but Lois, you and I do, right?
2: I do. He was a quite the famous journalist.
1: Right. They said that Walter Winchell was going to be coming to our base on Saturday. I said, well, great. I'll get some pictures of, of Walter Winchell. And um something happened that he didn't come or we didn't have access to him or something but anyway that's how i really started shooting i guess it was it might have been about 3 or 4 months later when i finished boot camp i was sent for on the job training in charleston south carolina as a diesel engine man i was out on the pier one day and i saw this guy coming down the, the pier with this big camera And I asked him, I said, well, uh, what kind of camera is that? And he told me, you know, that it was a a press camera. And uh, I said, well, i take pictures too. Let me show you some of my pictures. I was stationed on a tugboat at the time. I went in the boat, came back with my scrapbook and showed him and everything. He very graciously said, oh, pretty good. And so he told me a couple of things. And then he told me, um, look, I have a studio down near the the end of the boat line, come by one day, it's a yellow building and I'll show you what I do. So I went down there when, I guess maybe about three or four days later, I went down and he took me in the dark room and I watched them developing some some prints. I said, wow, look at those photographs coming out of the water. <laughs> so that, that sort of hooked me. And I went and bought a camera, a Minolta, iMatic matic 9 camera. I bought it in 1964. Uh, It was my first real 35 millimeter camera. And uh, that was a very volatile time. And I was doing some pictures and so on and so forth. Realized a couple of years later that I had all of this GI eligibility. Uh, Because of the time that I went in and the time that I came out of the military, I had both the Second World War as well as the Korean War eligibility. So I had a lot of eligibility, so I decided to go to photography school. And during that period, I met Gordon Park's son, who introduced me to Gordon Park senior. So I had access to him. And. Living in New Jersey at the time, it was like I said, very volatile in New Jersey and New York because I was going to New York Institute of Photography. I started documenting all of the civil rights stuff that was happening in the North, African Liberation Days, and of course the anti-war stuff. And I really got into that. So that's how I really got into documentary photography. In 1968, When Dr. King was assassinated, I said to Gordon one day, Gordon, the media is talking about, you know, we're free at last, free at last, and all of that. I said, it it doesn't seem like it to me. I said, I'm going to just document Black people for 10 years. Uh, I'm going to continue doing the cultural documentation, and I'm going to uh, document this human rights, whole human rights struggle. Gordon says, Well, he says, it sounds like you have a plan. He said, But your ass is going to starve. He <laughs> said, Nobody's going to pay you to just run around and shoot what you want to shoot. I said, No, but I'm going to New York Institute of Photography. I'm going to teach photography and I'm going to do my documentary work. That brings us up to today. My 10 years isn't quite up yet.
2: No. Thank goodness. We have photojournalists to thank for bearing witness to the severity of human and civil rights protests. Jim, when you went to these gatherings, how did you approach documenting the people and events? No doubt you must have felt scared at times.
1: Lois, like I said, I had spent several years in the streets in, in New York and New Jersey and so on and so forth. So that was light stuff. No. <laughs> in comparison. I just, I had this thing uh, about if I wanted to document something, I, I, I did it by any means necessary. I, matter of fact, when I was teaching photography one time, one of my students uh, said to me, Mr. Alexander, uh, what words did you use when you asked people? If you could shoot it picture, I said, you're asking the wrong person. I, I never asked anyone. I just, when I saw something I wanted to shoot, I shot it. And, and that was it. And, you know, a lot of times you, you found a way to do what you were going to do. Being culturally oriented, I knew a lot of the people who were, you know, involved with the NAACP and SNCC and Amiri Baraka and... All of those people, you know, who was out there in the streets doing things at that time. So they sort of got to, to know me. So I didn't, I didn't have problems.
2: One of the most chilling photos on display in this exhibition is your work called Confrontation, taken in 1978 in Tupelo, Mississippi. Would you describe it?
1: That was a series of pictures. There was a lot of us from Atlanta and other cities who went to Tupelo, Mississippi. There was an activist there by the name of Skip Robinson, and he had been struggling against the the Klan in Mississippi for quite some time. And so I was teaching photography in a program uh, at the Neighborhood Arts Center. It was adults, and uh, I got some of my students. I said, let's go on this march. Let's go down to Mississippi. I'm driving, and and document this anti-Klan march and rally. So uh, three of my male students and one female student all decided they wanted to go with me. So we went. We were down photographing pictures at a, a press conference by the Ku Klux Klan at the Tupelo police headquarters. And there was a gentleman who was standing near me and we started talking, found out that he was an ex-Marine and I was an ex-sailor and two ladies in a car. They seemed like they might have been college students or something, but they pulled up alongside of us because we were standing at the curb. One of them said uh, the clan got another rally going on up by the post office, up by the federal building up there. And he says, I'm going up there and cuss them out. And I said, well, I'm coming to take your picture. So we went up there. It was probably about three blocks walk. We went up there and he started cursing them out. And I started taking his picture. One of the Klansmen pulled a pistol on me. And um, there was a a guy there who had a jacket on. He didn't have a a robe on like the rest of them. He had this jacket on and he said um, to me, he says, You're not allowed to take pictures on federal property. I'm the security guy. I said, Well, come on, because you're in the picture with the Klan. And he turned around and took off. And, but we, uh, we took pictures for quite some time. And by and by, my students came up and they started taking some pictures. I made them stay back away.
2: What went through your mind? I mean, you, he pulled a gun on you.
1: What was
2: going through your mind as you were there?
1: My first thought was that they were looking to press, I think, you know, and uh, because there were some press people that came afterwards and so on and so forth. And it was, you know, broad open daylight. And since I had pictures, of him, I doubted whether he was going to do anything. And a couple of the other guys had guns too, because one of them, you can see in the picture, the the, the right directly behind him, he had a rifle up under his sheet. You can see him holding it with his right hand. Then later on, a truck, a pickup truck, came by, and several of the clansmen went over to the to the pickup truck. And they were handing out rifles to the rest of the Klansmen. And I took all of those pictures also. A lot of those photographs were used by this organization. I, I think it was probably the organization before Klan Watch, but it was Dr. C.T. Vivian involved with this organization. What happened was that evening, when a lot of the Klan's people, the people who were in the march and rally, was headed back north of wherever they came from. And they was waylaid on the highway. So they came to me to get some pictures. And they used some of my photographs to prosecute some of those clansmen Because what it was, they didn't have masks on. And so I had pictures of all of them
2: photographer Jim Alexander will be back with producer Adam Davis-McGee. His virtual film series is also part of the Hammond's House exhibition, No Justice, No Peace. Amplifying Atlanta, this is W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. We've been speaking with the photographer, Jim Alexander, about his works on view in the Hammond's House Museum show No Justice, No Peace, Protest Photography from 1967 through 2022. A virtual reality film series is also part of the exhibition. Here, film producer Adam Davis-McGee tells us about In Protest, grassroots stories from the front lines.
0: In Protest is an immersive virtual reality uh, docu-journalism series that I directed And produced along with a great team over at GMX Immersive Labs with support from Oculus. And the project was birthed out of having conversations uh, in response to the 2020 unrest, the murder of George Floyd and the unrest that was starting to unfold in uh, not only Minneapolis, but uh, around the US and of course around the world. And my background is in working in interactive tech, extended reality, VR, AR, et cetera. And we were having conversations about who was capturing this moment in history within the 360 VR sort of landscape. And Alton Glass, who is the founder of GRX Immersive Labs, he and I were having that conversation and Oculus was brought into the mix and we really started to strategize over how we could use this technology virtual reality to really authentically and with integrity begin to capture this moment in history and time and from there we started to build a small team and mind you this was during the pandemic so the idea of sending out a journalism team to different cities to start to capture these stories came with its own risks you know in addition just to the the broader conversation and unrest so I'm really proud of our team that, uh, you know, really went out there to Minneapolis, which is my hometown as well. I I live in Los Angeles, but I grew up just a few blocks. Uh, My grandfather lived just a few blocks from where George Floyd was murdered. So this story hit particularly close to home for me uh, and my family, but we went to Minneapolis, D.C., Atlanta, and Los Angeles to really put a spotlight on some of the unsung heroes. Of the movement people that were really stepping up during this moment of time for their community and really show what we really wanted to showcase a diverse spectrum of protests not just taking to the streets but how people really protest through the arts through food through voting through various ways that you might not always necessarily you know suspect and, and like through family and support so there were a lot of different stories that we just uh really wanted to put a spotlight and and, and most importantly, having like an all black virtual reality, you know, production crew to capture this very important moment in history that was really at the core of, um, you know, just bearing witness through this technology.
2: Yeah. And for people who aren't familiar with the technology, who have not experienced the virtual reality immersion. Can you explain why you want viewers to watch this series wearing a virtual reality headset?
0: Yeah, that's a really excellent question, Lois. And, um, you know, there's a, a lot of different answers to that. And I'll start with, first and foremost, the idea of Black people, especially not being at the table when it comes to these tools and technology. And, and you talk about the digital divide and you talk about this moment in time of, of adoption taking place of VR and, and different tools, both, you know, at the home, whether it's just being able to afford a headset or actual storytellers and creators and designers and developers just of color, you know, being at the table and embracing these tools. We, we felt it was very important for us to take ownership of that technology and, and, and take ownership of this story uh, through a journalistic lens. But even going beyond that, you know, the idea of being in protests and the idea of being inside of a moment and being able to step inside of a, of a, of a moment in time, this, this was a very a, a unique intersection of this technology having reached the domestication that it has, the capabilities to just take a 360 camera in your hand to the front lines, you know, that was really a big piece of, of we wanted to identify who was doing that and being able to give those those journalists, those citizen journalists, some runway and an opportunity to showcase their work. And that came with a really heavy challenge. The idea of if I am not a person of color, if I am, if I'm not a person who is putting their actual body on the line what right do I have to even go into that space uh, at my leisure, at my convenience? And this, these, these other kind of um, questions around journalism and integrity and trauma and triggering people and how we place people in these stories and in these spaces really was something that hadn't been tackled before. And, And that was something that our team really was very intentional about. And we, we, you know brought on some other executive producers, different people, experts that could really kind of help guide us through that journalism space with integrity as well as that tech space with integrity. But to answer your question, you know, I think 50 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, there will be no question, there will be no doubt of what happened during this moment in time. There will be no erasure, there will be no change, there will be no um questionable media intention and integrity with what happened in this moment in time because the 360 lens is is there's no frame. It's it's a full scope, it's a full view. And you are there, you're hearing it from the people and you are also inside of the moment with the people. And um, that you know piece of you know journalism uh, with integrity and just and history and documentation, that was, that was very important to us.
2: Yeah, I'm curious to know about the conclusions you came to in pondering the tough questions about putting someone who isn't black into that experience. I I would think it could be a revelation for someone who isn't black to feel like you're in the middle of an experience where you thought you were demonstrating peacefully and police or others turned to violence against you i i would think that experience would or could be life changing
0: yeah that's it, it was it was one of the areas where when we would sit down and do our interviews with our brave voices, I like to call them, uh, I don't call them like our interview subjects, but our our brave voices, we would take like a two to three minute sort of uh, sizzle, if you will, or, or just like we, we put a, a cut together, a string out of, of frontline footage. Because, you know, we, to back up, the, the people that we're sitting down with to interview also hadn't necessarily experienced the technology. They didn't, you know, they themselves weren't aware of like kind of what we were placing people inside of. And so we would show that to people like a two minute sizzle of here's what was happening, what was unfolding. And we would let them get into an emotional space, a mental space. And then we would ask them, how do you feel? And and, who would you like to show this to? So in addition to the interview of them sharing their own stories, they were able to also step into some of the various protests and, 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 activism that was taking place in other cities, even outside their own, asking them that question, who would you like to share this with and why? There was an, uh, such a, a wide spectrum of answers and a lot of people, you know, they would say, you know, another family member or they would say, I would want to show this to a white person, I would want to show this to the people who thought that all these protests were riots and that they, that they weren't necessary, I want to show this to people in Congress and that is at its heart you know part of the power of this tool of of, of VR and and immersive technologies this empathy machine and this and this storytelling machine is being able to take that moment with you by the hand and place someone inside of it is really important and and then for yeah certain individuals as uh because we haven't had a ton of time opportunities to show this publicly this Hammond's House Museum is really the maybe second or third time this is being shown publicly since the pandemic has started to ease up and things have started to open back up. We're trying to create spaces for people to come in and see it, but that is hopefully in the long run, you know, Lois, to your point, the the tool, the technology as a tool will hopefully be an eye opener and a a teacher for people, not just black folks, but like definitely for the human race to really gain insight and, and perspective That might be uh, a little bit different from what they saw in the news or read in the newspaper or read on the internet. You know, that's we really want to offer, you know, some of those life changing experiences through the headset.
2: I love your description of an empathy machine. There's much less room for interpretation with the virtual experience you're describing. Yeah. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois It's Great to have you along. I'm speaking with film producer Adam Davis-McGee and photographer Jim Alexander about the new exhibitions on view at Hammond's House Museum, part of No Justice, No Peace. Would you talk about the episode of James Tiago Bertrand's a protest is not a riot.
0: Yes, that's a really great one. So um, James Tiago, uh, we call him Tiago, but James Bertrand is his full name, is an Atlanta resident and he was one of the first people, he, he's a director and DP himself, so he, he's accustomed to being, you know, behind the lens. As Jim mentioned earlier, you know, Gordon Parks has a saying about the weapons of choice and the cameras is, is Tiago's weapon of choice. So during the moment in his episode, what he guides you through is he went down to the CNN center, the CNN building during the unrest and had his 360 camera and captured, you know, just the raw energy that was unfolding there with face-to-face with state police and troopers that were using their batons to push people out the way and move and you're there right in front of the police being shoved by the police as they, tell you to move. And people are, are there trying to protest peacefully and the police are shoving people in. And, and Tiago was there all day into the evening and towards the evening, he actually, you know, gets, gets maced. they gets pepper sprayed in a crowd by these cops. And um, it's a really heavy episode. And Tiago's main mission was just wanting to deliver an unfiltered and unbiased point of view of what was unfolding there in, in downtown Atlanta. His, his episode of protest is not a riot. That's That was what he was trying to let people know is this is the media spin and and, and the levels of, of it are pretty apparent obviously, you know CNN being what it is and where it is. And I don't, as far as I'm aware, I don't think they've come back since to downtown Atlanta, but it, it just raises all these questions and conversations around the role of media, media accountability, and that episode in particular, I just, I, I love Tiago, I love his bravery. And I love this idea of like a citizen journalist being on the front lines, you know, in juxtaposition of this huge media machine and juxtaposition of the state and putting his body on the line against the state. And that episode just really meant a lot to have him come in and sit down and, and share that story with us. And, you know, and most importantly, just, just applaud his bravery for going down there and, and capturing what he did.
2: In the episode with Killer Mike, he talks about seeing multiracial, multi generational protests as people wear these Oculus headsets and are immersed in the protests. How do you think viewers will respond to that experience?
0: I mean, you know, there, there, there's a lot of different responses that people are going to have and that people have had and there's 14 episodes total for in protest there's four different volumes in those different cities that I mentioned you know in the twin cities in minnesota washington dc la atlanta and i wish we could have captured more but when you start to unpack all the various themes throughout these episodes you're going to walk away with a lot of different feelings and emotions you know, sitting in a headset for an hour, a little over an hour is, is tough, even if you're watching something fun and light and entertaining, let alone something with such, such emotional you know, impact. But we've seen the response from the virtual reality community, people that know, like, which honestly is a majority white male-driven community still. And when we released our first trailer for the Minnesota volume, the flood of racist comments in our trailer under the Oculus YouTube channel, there was so much that Oculus decided to turn off the comments on our trailer. So we knew out the gate that this idea of bringing the Black Lives Matter conversation or just the role of just uh, journalism, you know, in in, in, in like um, docu-journalism with the subject matter, bringing it into the VR landscape was gonna be met with resistance and, and uncomfort.
2: I'm shocked. I am absolutely shocked.
0: Yeah, you know, that's, and, and a lot of us weren't, Lois, because we just knew what the temperature oh. check was. And, and of course, we were saddened that these comments were ch- shut off because I think there does need to be a place to have these conversations. And, you know, people like Jim Alexander, who have been capturing this work for decades and have watched people be murdered and have has been face-to-face with the state and the Klan and pistols, like, what are we doing this for, if not to honor that work already? You know, this 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 journalism, this this be a photography, a two D medium, an immersive medium. What are we doing if we're not going to, if this art, if this work doesn't bring out to light that sort of darkness? What are we doing it for, for the, if not to help people change and to facilitate conversation? And unfortunately, that just still scares people. So I, it just it really it, it's something where to answer your question. A lot of people are gonna take away different things from this work and overall I'm an optimist and I think it's gonna be a, a lot of, it's gonna to contribute to a lot of awareness and heart change. And as I said, like empathy, like expansion of, of, of the heart and, and this work, but it's not a singular worldview and a singular emotion that we'll witness. So yeah, that's, that's just the reality of it.
2: But it's irrefutable. Evidence, yeah. <laughs> I'm mystified. Jim, you have photographed Black Lives Matter protests in recent years. How do today's protests compare to those which occurred decades ago?
1: Well, what's happening today has to do with who's out there protesting. You know, there is a, in one of my photographs, a, a graphic that I did, I took a quote from Franz Fanon that said, each generation out of relative obscurity must discover their mission, fulfill it or betray it. And I fully believe in, in that and, and, and it's happening like that. If you look at uh, some of Adam's work, uh, as well as my own, you'll see a lot of different generations. And what is happening is that, uh, I guess, in the last 25 years or so, you see parents with their children, parents encouraging <laughs> their children, and, and that wasn't like it was 50 years ago, you know, because there was a lot of fear there and rightfully so. And so that was why I decided back in the 60s that I would teach photography in community settings to black youth and other youth to document their period in time. So in 1988, when they had the first National Black Arts Festival, Gordon Parks came to an opening of a exhibit that I had at the Apex downtown. And that exhibit was on one of my favorite black cultural institutions and that's black music. And he had me walk him through the whole exhibit. And when we finished going through it, he said to me, Well, Jim, and before he used to call me James all the time, which you know I didn't like. And he said, well, Jim, you ran around and shot what you wanted to shoot. And he (laughs) remembered what he had said to me 20 years earlier. And and, and I guess I had this fear of the media documenting only those things that had some sensationalism to to it. And, And that wasn't my role. My role was to document the people, places, and things
2: that we were doing. Photographer Jim Alexander and film producer Adam Davis-McGee, No Justice, No Peace, Protest Photography from 1967 through 2022, is on view at the Hammond's House Museum in their downstairs gallery through June 26th. The virtual reality film series in protest, grassroots stories from the front lines, is also part of the exhibition. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, We'll listen back to my conversation with the experimental guitarist, Kaki King. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 2006, Rolling Stone magazine put Khaki King's name on the list of new guitar gods, and among the list of 19 other names was John Mayer. Khaki was the only female on the list and the youngest in her 20s at the time. Now, 15 years later, Khaki King is pushing the limits of what it means to be a guitarist by interweaving experimental theater and new technology into her performances. I spoke with her last October when she was performing her multimedia piece, Data Not Found, at the first Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. Our conversation began with Kaki explaining when she first learned how to play the guitar.
3: I was really young. I was about five years old. So I don't have a clarity of memory from that age. I just kind of remember the guitar always being part of my life.
2: And did you study formally?
3: I never studied what you would call formally. I did take lessons when I was a little kid. And then here and there I'd pick up something from someone or have a teacher for a little bit, but I really became as a teenager, you know, pretty much entirely self-taught, but I was also pursuing music in other ways. In high school, I played drums and band. And so there was, there was a lot of, I was sort of surrounded by it, but however, I, did, I do lack a formal guitar degree.
2: You did okay.
3: I did okay, I turned out okay, it's true. Yeah.
2: As I mentioned in the intro, you were the only woman guitarist that made the New Guitar Gods list in 2006. Why do you think the guitar field is male-dominated? Things have changed,
3: so I want to just like focus on the the good news, which is that many more women have, in the interim. Um, taking up the guitar, our purchasing guitars, guitar marketing is geared much more towards women than it ever has been. And the result is that there's so many more amazing, amazing women players and composers than was ever on the scene when I was coming up. So that's like the really good news. You know, I think that the answer to your question is just about the answer for any other male-dominated field. You know, why aren't there more women in XYZ, STEM, medicine, um, you know, whatever. It's all, again, it's, it's, there's a shifting tide that we're seeing right now with a lot of things. And I think that women in the guitar are just part of that.
2: Kaki, which guitarists inspired you when you were younger?
3: A, I was a, a Britpop fan believe it or not I thought that there was a lot of interesting electric guitar work going on from Graham Coxon and Blur and Johnny Marr from the Smiths and sort of interesting kind of combination p- finger picking and very melodic playing inside of, a, of an indie rock band with a singer which, you know, for me at the time was really the only real paradigm that existed in terms of a popular genre. But I was also very influenced by the early Wyndham Hill albums, guitarists like Michael Hedges and Will Ackerman and Alex Degrassi, because they were doing this sort of out, really out of the box playing that didn't have a specific, it wasn't jazz, it wasn't classical, it wasn't speed metal, you know, it really... Felt like its own undefinable thing, so I was very attracted to things that I had not that you wouldn't that wouldn't occur to you as being something that the guitar can be capable of.
2: Please tell us about your multi-year partnership with Georgia Tech Arts.
3: Oh my God, Georgia Tech has just been an absolute. It's funny; it's a the home away from home. But I'm also from Atlanta. Yeah, um, and my mother is an alum, oh. and. So un-, un unrelated seemingly I was I got involved with Georgia Tech when I presented my work The Neck is a Bridge to the Body there I want to say 2018 but you know time is a little bit fluid these days so. I
2: call it covid standard time
3: <laughs> Exactly covid I mean there's the whole yeah so you might want to fact check that but I presented The Neck is a Bridge to the Body and from there they became interested in commissioning a new work from me the title of which is "Data Not Found," and between that and and COVID happening and other programming events sort of going online, or, or you know, there there was just a sort of room for me to come and continue to to present despite the difficulty of the interim. So I did a pre-taped uh, performance of a show called "Modern Yesterdays." I did my first outdoor concert, my first one. It was presented by Georgia Tech, first one since the pandemic. And for that, I'm eternally grateful because it really just rejuvenated my love for, for playing and performing and everything. So yeah, we've had this, you know, almost by accident or by COVID
2: accident. I read that you created music for numerous film and TV soundtracks, including August Rush and Into the Wild. Was it your work? with film and TV soundtracks that kind of inspired you to combine audio or music with visual elements? It's so
3: interesting. That's a great, you know, again, I've been listening to you, I feel, in my entire life. And you you really ask the most lovely pointed questions and get the most out of everyone. And thank you for asking me that because it's never occurred to me Kaki,
2: you're going to make me cry now, and (laughs) sniffling into the microphone does not sound good, but thank you.
3: Well, to answer that, I never would have made that connection naturally. But what I will say is that when you're doing a film soundtrack, when making music to something visual, it's a much easier process for me as a musician. And the reason is I have all the context that I need to create a piece or create a snippet, or even whatever it is, I have tone, I have length, I have tempo, I have, you know, I have all of these things that are just, you know, this is what we are trying to make people feel. And whether it's a commercial where I'm trying to make someone want to enjoy a new brand of iced tea, or if it's a scene where someone is, you know, lost a loved one, you know, it, it, there's so much information that I don't have to invent. And that can be a big relief as a musician because otherwise you're kind of sitting there inventing every single bit. So I think the visual work that I've done has been almost easier as a musician because I write to what matches what I'm working with visually, and then I alter what's happening visually to rematch the
2: music. I think maybe you could have your director nominate you for one of those MacArthur fellowships.
3: <laughs> That's very sweet of you to say. The way
2: you just express that. So oh. would you say that essentially adding the visual... And technological elements to your musical performances allows you to tell stories.
3: In a completely new way, it's true. And I center everything around the guitar. The focal point of all I do is the guitar. I am the guitar made me everything that I am and gave me the life that I have. So without respecting that relationship, I feel very lost. So it's still a way of expression through who I am and the instrument that, frankly, I think chose me.
2: Composer and guitarist Kaki King. Her latest album, Modern Yesterdays, is out now. You can hear the extended interview about Data Not Found on our website, wabe.org/slash. City Lights. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words.
4: Hi, my name is Obi. I sing in a hardcore band called Playtime from Atlanta. Been doing music since I was like 15 or so. All of us have like very different musical backgrounds, but we've all just have uh, we all kind of met just going to hardcore and punk shows around the city, and you know we all kind of like had similar tastes, and you know we were we were all friends before the band started, and we decided to just give this thing a shot. I see. I see
2: the
4: pretty much grew up on the outskirts of atlanta but we all kind of moved to the city for school or other reasons and you know now like pretty much we all live there now so on top of that too like so much atlanta music has influenced our taste, whether it be rap or you know old bands from back in the day and just our friends and people in general and you know the people that have been supporting us One of these songs is called Wind Like, and it's a song featuring our friend Stem Lines, who's my favorite artist of all time. Honestly, I'm sending it because it's one of our only clean ones, to be honest. And but it's a really good song. It's a song that our guitarist Travis wrote, and he's the one singing on this song specifically.
2: I be
4: the next song is called Sinkin' and, you know, it's a fast one and it's, I don't know, it's one of my favorites on the last record that we put out. Right now we have a show, June 19th, coming up in Philly, playing Break Free Fest, and um, yeah, we're going to have some stuff coming up in the fall, Um, some Atlanta shows coming up later this year, but for right now, the only one I can actually talk about is the one coming up in Philly.
2: Obi, the singer for the hardcore band Playtime. You can find more information about them and Our series, Speaking of Music, at wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the story behind a play about the hot-button debate over Roe versus Wade in a new production at Horizon Theater. City Light Senior Producer is Kim Troghs. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and you can follow me on Twitter at L O I S R E I T Z E S. Thanks for listening to W A B E Atlanta.